This is a great chapter, a great couple of chapters. We covered uh, some sections of it on Sunday morning. But there's more here. I want to go over these two chapters in totality tonight. Beginning in verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Moses continues speaking to the people and he says, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. He says, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling. And there you shall come. The command was simple, The command was clear. The command was practical. It wasn't just avoid the old idols and places of pagan worship. It was obliterate them. Take them out. Leave nothing behind of them. Tear down the idols and flatten the strongholds and eliminate the high places. Why? We talked about why on Sunday. Interest, inquiry, and intrigue. The lures of Satan. And if Israel were to come into the land and leave those high places, even if they tore down the idols, but if they left the high places where those idols were, somebody would be curious as to why those places were so-called sacred to the pagans. Someone would wonder, is there anything left up there? Are there any vestiges of these peoples who came before us? I wonder what their worship was like. I wonder if maybe we could co-opt some of what they do into our own worship to give it more meaning and deeper experience. It's just the way of man. Interest, inquiry, intrigue, these are the lures of Satan and God's people have no business fishing in these ponds. Sadly, Israel today, today is pockmarked with pagan temples and shrines and mosques and even churches which either deny or misrepresent the Lord God in His true nature and character. You can go to Western Galilee and see the Baha'i Temple, the the primary place of the Baha'i religion where Baha'u'llah is buried, the founder of the Baha'i faith. You can go to the highly ornamented churches claiming to depict sacred locations, many of them completely wrong. You can go and see the dome-topped mosques, the most famous of which are the Al-Aqsa and the Dome of the Rock mosques. When we were in Jerusalem this last January, we stayed in the Olive Tree Hotel, which is in the Muslim quarter of the city. Not my first choice for a place to stay. Because around 5 a.m. every morning, we awoke to the sound of the Muslim imams hauntingly calling their people to worship. And it was the spookiest sound I'd ever heard. It was really disconcerting to wake up to that noise, to to that sound, walking across and projected across the area, which is one of the reasons why for the next trip to Israel I requested that we not be in the Muslim quarter, (laughs) that we be in a different place. But the Muslims are called and waked to come and worship their pagan god, and you might say, oh, Rick, that's a little strong. I thought, 
The God of Islam is the same as the God of Abraham, not so different God. It's not the Abraham, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Muhammad's tribe, the tribal God, the moon God. Even today, Israel has vestiges of the paganism that has remained over long periods of time. But God called them and He said, when you go in, I want you to take it out. And as we begin our study tonight, we're faced with a timeless and immediate principle for our own lives. I recall Jesus at the Passover in Jerusalem, John chapter 2, verse 23. It tells us, during the feast, many believed in His name, observing His signs, which He was doing. This is early on. The first outing, really, of Jesus' ministry as he comes into Jerusalem the first time. People were listening to him, believing in him, observing his signs, which he was doing. But it tells us Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. In other words, he wasn't giving them a yay or a nay about his, about his Messiahship. He was holding it close to the chest. And John tells us why. For he knew all men. John says he did not need anyone to to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man and so Jesus was careful not to make revelations of himself not yet, not until the time was right because he knew exactly how people would react and respond he knew some would attempt to make him king on the spot he knew others would attempt to take his life on the spot he knew what was in the heart of man and the point is this God knows the heart of man He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what we can take, what we can't take. He knows what we will do. And so knowing this, he says very clearly to the people of Israel, isolate and eradicate all idols. Leave nothing. Obliterate them completely. I like that word, obliterate. I used to use it when I was playing Legos. (laughs) We build and build and build only to obliterate. And that's what the Lord says to do. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. The heart is deceitful and therefore obliterate the high places. Obliterate, eradicate the idols. Take them down. Get them out of your life completely because if you leave anything, your heart's going to wander back there. The heart of man is going to seek the lures. Which is why John writes in 1 John 5.21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The word keep in the Greek in 1 John 5.21 is phuloso. It literally means isolate. Isolate the idols. Isolate yourself from the idols so that you can't even get to where they are. Isolate and eradicate. It's not only the destruction of idols that concern the Lord. It was the destruction of their very locations that the locations themselves would be obliterated in favor of the place where God's name would rest. Now Christians, listen up. Again, I assume that you all are Christians here tonight. It's kind of the Wednesday night in-depth Bible study crowd. Listen closely. The name of the Lord rests in you and on you. The place where the name of the Lord dwells is you and me. It's in our hearts and in our lives. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4.16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Do you ever just stop and glorify God that you get to be called Christian? When was the last time you prayed that? Thank you, Lord, for putting your name on me. 
for allowing me the privilege, the honor, the blessing of being called, literally, little Christ. That's what Christian means. Little follower. Mini Jesus guy. Thank you, Lord, that we can wear your name. Back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, tells us that to Seth, to him also a son was born, and his name was called Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. But the translation is very interesting. Because in the Hebrew there, it can be either men called upon the name of the Lord, or at this time men were called by the name of the Lord. Which is exactly what a Christian is. Someone called by the name of the Lord. Acts 11.26 The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so I ask you, as I've had to ask myself in studying this passage, are there any high places? Are there any altars, any groves of paganism in your life? Places that you go that lure you away from the name of Christ. Places that you know personally you ought not to visit But you haven't obliterated it in your life. It's still there, back there. You can go there. You're trying not to. And I'm not going to put a finer point on it than that. I want you to think about, in your life, what are the high places? What are the lures? What are the locations that pull you away from Jesus rather than driving you to the name of Christ? Moses said to the people of Israel, and I believe God would say to us tonight, deal with them completely. Because compromise always leads to heartache. A funny thing happened this week. I'm doing a wedding this weekend. One of the people getting married, the bride, was Jewish and um, has, has accepted Christ, which is awesome. But in counseling with them prior to doing this wedding, and in talking with this young couple, one of the things that came up is the bride's mother is still very Jewish, very secular Jewish, but still very Jewish nonetheless. And asked that the name Jesus not be spoken in the ceremony. Interesting. And so I said, I'm going to have to pray about that one. And I went away from it and began thinking about it, praying about it. I was with some friends on Labor Day having a barbecue and still kind of processing. The way I do, I, I process out loud and I kind of threw it out. What do you guys think about this? Right, Gary? <laughs> what do you think about this? Now, I know what Gary thinks about this because I got an email from him a few days later. I won't tell you what Gary thinks. You'll have to ask him. But I threw it out there just curious and, and it was interesting to me and I, and I think a real blessing to see the reaction because there was a reaction over our Labor Day barbecue. There was an immediate reaction. You're not going to do that, are you? You're not actually going to go and perform a wedding and deny or not speak the name of Jesus. And and what was funny to me is in in the conversation, all I did was ask the question, and I never really said what I was going to do. I just kind of listened. But it was good to know that it riled people up a little bit. No, I'm not going to do a wedding without saying the name Jesus. Sorry, I can't. Thank you. (laughs) but you know what gang I was caught in a place where the lure of compromise was right there because you know what the logic is of it hey if if we compromise if I just kind of soft pedal it maybe I'll have opportunity in the future to talk with this Jewish mother Maybe I'll have a chance to speak the name Jesus later if I honor her now by not speaking it. I wonder if that's what Peter was thinking. Hey, if I just deny Christ right now, I'll save myself, and then later on I'll, of course, confess it. I don't think Peter was thinking that far ahead, actually. 
getting rid of the lures, avoiding the compromise. Compromise always leads to heartache. A modern example of this game, back in 1967, Israel had the opportunity to eradicate and obliterate the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock Mosque sitting on top of the Temple Mount. They could have done it for the first time since... The first time since they were driven out in A.D. 70, Israel stormed the Temple Mount in the Six-Day War, took control of it, and had sovereignty once again over the Temple Mount where the Temple of Solomon stood, where Herod's Temple, the Second Temple, stood. And they had authority over it and could have, at that time, wiped out those two mosques and begun rebuilding the Jewish Temple. They didn't do it. I, I think God didn't want them to at that point. I believe the Lord stayed their hand. Why? Because prophetically he's doing something else. But in that moment, gang, by deciding not to remove the high place of the Muslim temples that were there, Israel set themselves up for problems that they are having to this very day. It has not gone away. Compromise. Compromise. If we leave this here and leave the Muslim imams in control, and the the Jordanian at that time, now the Palestinian walk... I love saying some of the Muslim or or Arabic names are just interesting. The Waqf. W-A-Q-F. It's the way my kids spell things. But anyway, what was I even saying? That they left it there in their control. Religious sovereignty still is in the hands of the Muslims. Even though national sovereignty is in the hands of Israel, it's a fascinating thing. Stand on the Temple Mount and see the Muslims going in and out of their places of worship while Israeli soldiers are up there guarding very strange compromise God declared an obliteration of the altars the cultic high places Moses said when you go into the land wipe it out get rid of it obliterate obliterate it leave nothing left and then he said there you shall seek me I'm going to give you a place there you shall do all I command verse 6 there you shall bring your burnt offerings your sacrifices your tithes the contribution of your hand your votive offerings your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock there also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you you shall not do what we're all doing here today Moses says every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes for you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you when you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security then it shall come about the place the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which, which you will vow to the Lord. Where is there? It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. On the border between Judah and Benjamin. That's the place where God intended for his people to come and seek his face. One place in all the nation. Not places scattered all over the place. But one temple. One location to seek the Lord God. One place for there God said, there I'm going to place my name. That is the city that I have chosen for myself. Jerusalem originally meaning the foundation of or presence of peace. Jerusalem. And there's disagreement, argument among archaeologists and scholars of history as to whether the original name was actually in Hebrew as opposed to some other name. That it may have first been spoken in Hebrew. Jerusalem. 
the foundation or presence of peace. Jerusalem is first mentioned in the Bible as Salem. Melchizedek, the king, the mysterious king of Salem, is honored by Abraham back in Genesis 14, verse 18. And then secondly, it's mentioned when Joshua and the Israelites conquered the city during Israel's conquest of the land, Joshua chapter 10. And later, it remained under control even after that conquest of the Jebusites until David reconquered it and made it the capital of Israel. The capital of his kingdom around 1000 B.C. But God had his eye on Jerusalem long before that. The Bible tells us in Psalm 132 verse 13, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever, the Lord says. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And five times we see in Deuteronomy chapter 12, five times Moses indicates that God chose Jerusalem to be the dwelling place for his name. Verse 5, verse 11, verse 14, verse 18, and verse 21, as you'll see, he keeps referring to the place where his name would dwell. Psalm 48, verse 2, Jerusalem is beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that he who touches Jerusalem touches the very apple of God's eye. And the Lord said, I am going to establish my name there. For how long, Lord? Forever. Psalm 132.14. Forever this will be the dwelling place of my name. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of his name, the city of historic past and prophetic future. There is truly nothing like it. And it's the coolest experience in the world to be on a tour bus, those great big windows, and to be coming underneath the Mount of Olives in the tunnel that leads to the, to the old city. And to burst out of that tunnel at sunset, which is what the tour groups like to do because it overwhelms people, and to see the Temple Mount off to the left lit up by the light of the sun, golden in the sunset. It's an awesome experience. And I've told you before, as we did that in the tour bus, of course, the bus driver had the tape playing the song, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and we're just like, oh, you know, and, and chills, and people are crying and weeping and rededicating their lives, and they were all pastors, so it was kind of funny, and we just were amazed at this experience of coming into the city. Did you know some scientists even have named a syndrome after the reaction some people have coming into Jerusalem? It's called Jerusalem Syndrome. They say that there are those, and it's happened, and I hope it doesn't happen to anyone on our group, but those who have had literally a psychotic experience, kind of lost their minds, coming in because of the overwhelming emotion of seeing the city, Jerusalem. Again, coming into the promised land, entering Jerusalem itself is a potent and picturesque description of coming out of the world and into the spirit-filled life in Christ Jesus. You're on that tour bus. The windows are big and open. And you burst out of the tunnel into your new life in Christ Jesus. The sun is, is hitting the temple mount, which is Jesus. And you're overwhelmed. Not psychotic. But you are literally enlightened as you become a Christian and give your life to Christ Jesus. Isaiah 9.2 tells us the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Now at the time, the pagan temples were scattered all about the land, proclaiming, worship wherever and however you will. And Moses says, and God says to the people, but not you. 
When you come into the land, the promised land, you will enter into one place to worship. One location. One city. Jerusalem. And you will worship there one God. One God and Father of us all. Jerusalem. And in Christ, gang, in Jesus, we go a step further than wandering Israelites coming into a particular land or a particular city. We go a step beyond that. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You know who the righteous made perfect are? It's us. Isn't that great? And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now notice what Moses says will happen when the people come into Jerusalem, the place where his name is established to dwell. Verse 12 says, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. In one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you to do. In the place God chose for His name, Moses says, you'll come offering and you will leave rejoicing. You'll come offering and you will leave rejoicing. Offering the people would bring their gifts before the Lord and rejoicing the Lord blesses the people in celebration. Come offering, leave rejoicing. It's a picture of worship even for us today. A lot of times people come expecting and leave disappointed. The Lord says, come offering and you will leave rejoicing. Come ready to engage and you will leave blessed. Come offering. Bring your gifts to the Lord. Bring all that you have and lay it before the Father. In your worship, in your prayer, in your study, in your giving, come offering and leave rejoicing. Verse 15 going on, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which He has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. You are not allowed to eat within your gates. Wait a minute. Stop right there. The blood. Why not the blood? Why not eat of the blood? What's the deal with the blood? You know this. If you've studied through Leviticus especially, you know Leviticus, that bloody book. Chapter 17, verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It's the life in the blood. I love the picture of blood. Now I know blood in our society, in our culture, in our Hollywood-driven mentality, blood is, is about gore and, and violence and disaster and people being torn apart. But blood is a precious symbol. An amazing symbol. A symbol in Christianity that sometimes we've lost the depth of its meaning, of its sweetness and its goodness. The blood 
the blood. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Let me ask you a question. How often do you pray in the blood? How often do you pray the blood of Jesus over someone who is hurting? Or someone who needs healing? Or someone who is despairing? The blood, gang, is our covering. The blood of Jesus, our very life. It's what washes over us, symbolically cleansing us of all of our sins. The blood. To the point that in Isaiah 53, the Lord says, By His stripes we are healed. But there is actual healing that comes from the blood of Christ. The blood even spoken over us. And Hebrews 12.24 tells us you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Better than the blood of Abel. It's a better blood. It's better than the blood of animals. The blood of animals was only a picture, a temporary substitute emblem. Something that later, looking back, people could say, Oh, I see blood on the altar, blood on the cross. I get it. This was all pointing us to Jesus in the first place. But it could never take away sin. And it was never satisfactory. It was only substitutionary. Better than the blood of animals is the blood of Christ. Better than the blood of Abel. Why is that? Because the blood of Abel cried out for justice. Crying out to God from the ground, I have been murdered. I want justice. God said, Cain, why is it that I hear the blood of your brother crying out? He wants justice. But the blood of Jesus cries mercy, not justice. Jesus' blood stands eternal and complete. Something the blood of animals could only imply or indicate, but could not even approach. Something that the blood of Abel couldn't do. Mercy. Personally, I think the very creation of blood was for, was for this picture. God, in His absolutely perfect timing, as He began to create man, woman, as He created even the animals before them, pumped blood into them. And I don't believe that it was an afterthought. There's no such thing, by the way, as an afterthought with God. He doesn't have afterthoughts. It's all forethoughts. Everything that God thinks and does is on purpose. And so the blood that flows through our veins, God put it there. Why? Because He needed a picture, a powerful picture of life. And our life is in the blood. Empty the blood out of any one of us and we wouldn't look too good. We wouldn't do too well. Empty the blood out of the body of Jesus Christ. And you see the depth of the love of God. And so even in creation, the substance, God says, blood, that'll show up. That'll explain and express my love, my mercy. That will point us to the better blood of Jesus Christ. Going on in verse 17, you are not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or new wine or oil or the firstborn of your herd or flock or any of your votive offerings which you vow or your free will offerings or the contribution of your hand. By the way, the tithe for the Israelite was everything. It wasn't the uh, 10% of the uh, net income after taxes were taken out and we've taken out um, medical and uh, other expenses. It's everything. First 10% of everything that you so-called own 
everything that God has given you, 10%, it's all to go back to the Lord. Whether it's their new wine or oil or the firstborn of the herd or flock or their votive offerings or their vows, free will offerings or the contribution of their hands. Verse 18, God says, You shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite who is within your gates and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all of your undertakings. And by the way, the tithe is not up to the decision of the tither either. Tither either. It's not up to us. It certainly wasn't up to the Israelites God says you can do whatever you want with your meat and your stuff and your own towns. That's fine. But your tithe is not your call. Your tithe comes to Jerusalem. Your tithe goes to the temple. Your tithe is given to the Lord and you don't have any say in what's done with it. And it absolutely amazes me and it's happened to me and I've experienced this in churches previous to this one that people say, I'm not going to do it my way. I'm going to withdraw my tithe. You know what my attitude is about that today? Go for it. Yeah. See you later, Tide. God is going to take care of it. It's not our call. The Tide Gang is all about faith, without strings attached, without any connection to it, and the Tide given in faith blesses the Tither. Come in offering, you go out rejoicing. By the way, I heard this recently. The best way to find out where a person is really at in their life and in their faith is look at their checkbook. (laughs) I'm not asking to do that. Spend a few minutes in the registry of a checkbook because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I did that yesterday. Why not? It's an interesting thought. I began going down my checkbook registry and going, that's where my heart is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God goes on in verse 19. Actually, it's Moses speaking. It says, Be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. Now listen, I'm blessed to pastor this fellowship where my family is well taken care of and provided for. But it's interesting to me, God says, Take care of the Levite. And I truly wonder what God will do with those church boards and trustees who penny-pinched and underrated their pastors. It happens far too often. I didn't say that for your benefit, Jim. It's Delbert. <laughs> Raise time is past. That was history. Verse 20, reading on. When the Lord your God extends your border as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat, because you desire to eat meat, then you may eat meat, whatever you desire. Verse 21, if the place which the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter of your herd and flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your gates whatever you desire. Just as a gazelle or a deer is eaten, so you will eat it. The unclean and the clean alike, they may eat of it. Only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life. The blood is the life. And you shall not eat the life with the flesh. Verse 24, you shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. You shall not eat it so that it may be well with you and your sons after you, for you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. That blood is precious. The precious picture. Again, pointing to Jesus. Verse 26. Only your holy things, which you may have, and your votive offerings, you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God, and the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the flesh. 
So you understand, and again, this is kind of going back to our Leviticus studies. But they would bring the offering, and they would pour out the blood. The blood was poured out on the altar, and some of the offering was given to God, but much of it was given to the offerer to eat and to celebrate with. An amazing thing that they shared in that sacrifice and that offering. Verse 28 says, Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you, so that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And so again, we see here referencing the laws of blood and flesh sacrifices. The first five chapters of Leviticus go through in depth. And we, and we picked apart those sacrifices Those first five chapters talk about all of the sacrifices that God required of the Jewish people. Moses refers us back to them. And they have such amazing and graphic pictures, each one of them, of the flesh and blood, the better blood of Jesus Christ. Turn quickly to John chapter 6 in your New Testament. It's John chapter 6. As Jesus takes hold of this amazing principle of the flesh and blood sacrifice and he begins to apply it to himself and I just want you to listen to his words John 6 verse 41 therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said I am the bread that came down out of heaven they were saying is this not Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know how does he now say I've come down out of heaven (laughs) how indeed Jesus answered and said to them do not grumble among yourselves No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. By the way, quick side note, it is amazing how all aspects, all personalities of the Trinity work together for your salvation and mine. We're told that the Father draws to Jesus. Jesus gives up his life to save us. The Holy Spirit seals us in our salvation. All three working together. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Our first sense that maybe we're doing something wrong, that we need Jesus, was the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. The drawing of the Father in our life, the recognition of Jesus in our life, it's amazing. The Akkad, the three-in-one, the unity, the tri-unity of God working together for our salvation. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus says. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. He sees him every time he looks in the mirror. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And then Jesus begins to really dig in. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that no one may eat of it or so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Off the charts, the Jews began to argue with one another saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Cannibal! I added that right in there. But that's the sentiment. Verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Again, it's, it's sheer cannibalism. At face value, what is He talking? By the way, did you hear about the two clowns who were arguing? They were, they were actually... No, I'm sorry, it was two cannibals. 
eating a clown. And one said to the other one, do you taste something funny? Move on. He says, uh, verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood just had to throw that in there. My blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. This is now getting down. This is what I mean. Listen, pay attention, Jesus says. Eating my flesh, drinking my blood, it's abiding in me. And I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now these things he said. In the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. If you go to Israel you'll see that synagogue. You will walk in it. Your feet will be on the very place where Jesus' feet stood. Stunning. And many of his disciples at this point in this synagogue. Verse 60. When they heard this they said this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? This is not a seeker driven pastor this is not a Jesus making it easy for us to come in the doors but Jesus conscious that his disciples grumbled at this said to them does this cause you to stumble oh well let me back off of it and make it easier for you oh no I'm sorry he doesn't say that he says does this cause you to stumble what then if you see the son of man ascending to where he was before in other words (laughs) news flash for you gang I'm God I'm God I'm God It is the Spirit who gives life. Flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And He was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. Graphic. Straight to the point, Jesus says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And on an annual basis, well no, on a weekly basis, we do the symbol of this in taking communion together. The eating of the flesh, the drinking of the blood. I had a visitor just a couple weeks back, came to the bridge for the first time and came up to me and said, you mean you take communion every single week? I'll tell you what, it's stunning to me that we live in a day and age in the church where it's surprising that a church would take communion on a weekly basis. Where have we gone to step so far away from that place? Absolutely we do this every week because it's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And as we take that that little cracker and we drink that little cup of juice, we understand, we know what's being said. It is the flesh and blood of Jesus. It is that picture of our very salvation. A reminder of what He did on the cross. That we not get too far away from what Jesus did. It's the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, Beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you and that you do not inquire after their gods. Remember from Sunday we studied this saying how do these nations serve their gods that I may also do likewise. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And we talked about Molech. How they would burn infant children as sacrifices to Molech. Also, we've talked about before, they would build 
their infant children into the walls of their places of business or their homes to receive a blessing these pagans would and the child would die in those walls and we know this because of archaeological excavations that have found these places these buildings and the bones of infants built into the walls and God says that's an abomination to me don't feel bad don't take pity on the people of Canaan as the Israelites are coming in they were horrific it was an awful paganistic culture and Moses says verse 32 whatever I command you you shall be careful to do you shall not add to it or take away from it Sunday we talked about this in some depth there's something interesting about how we don't want to offend people who come to our front doors I've had many discussions with Christians about this. We don't want to offend the Mormons. We want to be nice because we might be able to save them. We don't want to offend the Jehovah's Witness because, again, we might be able to turn them. We don't want to offend the other cults, and yet they have offended our Father in their very system of belief by adding to or taking away from the Word. They have offended the Lord God, and yet we're so afraid to be of offense of any kind. Now you might say, well, Rick, wait a minute. Shouldn't we be able to give an answer? I mean, aren't we supposed to be prepared in these situations? And people will go straight to 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And that verse is used as the proof text verse. That verse is the reason people point to it and say, see, we've got to be ready when the Mormon comes to my door. My friends, this is not talking about the Mormon coming to your door. The context of that verse is to be, to be ready to give a, a plea, an account of yourself when you are going through persecution or suffering and when someone sees you suffering and says, my goodness, Joe is in the throes of difficulty in his life and yet he still seems to be singing those Christian worship songs. First of all, we'd like him to stop singing. But secondly, why, <laughs> why is he doing that? Because Peter said, always be ready to make a defense for the hope that's in you. Always be ready to share. To make a defense doesn't mean studying Mormonism so that you can discuss Mormonism with a Mormon. To make a defense means knowing your Lord Jesus so well that when someone questions how you're living your life, you can explain who Jesus is. You can take them to the Word and show them what God is all about. Because this you know. I love Gail Irwin's comments. I don't know a whole lot about that, but I do know Jesus. I don't know a lot about evolution, but I know Jesus. I don't know a lot about science. don't know much about history, but I do know Jesus Christ, who has saved me. I know Jesus. The Greek word, by the way, for giving an account there, it's apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics in Christianity. To be able to give an account or to make a defense but so often, the case is in apologetics, there's, there's a tendency to learn about the other religions, the cults, so that we can try and, from their perspective, bring the gospel. And that's not what Peter is talking about at all. Peter is not saying study the cults or inquire after them. And you might say, well, shouldn't we answer the cults? And my answer to that is yes, with a solid grounding in God's word. This is your answer. This is where the truth lies. This is the substance thing of those discussions. 
Rather than making inquiry into the cults, I said this on Sunday, God invites us to make inquiry into His Word. To know His Word. That's your answer. Well, you're saying this, but, but the Bible says this. But God's Word tells us this. But I understand Jesus here saying this. You go to the Word. You inquire of the Lord. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. The Word made flesh is solid and consistent and absolute. And the Hebrew writer, Hebrews 13, verse 9, says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Beware of the cults. Watch out. Take care. It's dangerous. Watch this. In fact, turn in your Bibles to 2 John. 2 John, toward the end of the New Testament. It is a dangerous thing to even study or to inquire after false teachings. This is fascinating. Listen to this. 2 John chapter 1. Well, there's only one chapter. Verse 7. 2 John 1, 7. John says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. By the way, one example of that is Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Scientology, who doesn't believe Christ came in the flesh, that he was a spirit being. John knocks Scientology right on its rear end here by saying, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and antichrist. He goes on, he says, Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone, listen to this, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, John writes, do not receive him into your house. And do not even give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. John would say, if he were here with us tonight speaking to us, don't even open the door for him. What's he talking about here? You might say, well Rick, you're sounding awfully protective here. I can handle it. I feel led to speak with Mormons and Jehovah's Witness or anyone else who knocks on my door and you may be in that place or may have been in that place and, and felt called to be ready when they come to the door to try and talk some sense into them. Gang, I have watched people inquire of a cult only to be completely drawn into the cult. People study it to understand it so that they could talk their friends out of it only to be drawn into it themselves. The cults are lures. Do not forget, do not forget that behind every cult and working within false teachings are demons, are agents of Satan, and the whole purpose for their existence is to lure away from the truth, not to have lively debate, but to be a lure. God is serious about avoiding the lures and the seductions of Satan in this world. I'll tell you what, I, I've mentioned to you before, I read recently a book, Under the Banner of Heaven, not a Christian book, but talks about Mormonism. And it's really weird, I began to recognize something just even in myself, feeling a little bit of the lure. Now don't freak out, I'm not going to be a Mormon. Okay. 
But I'm reading this book, and as I'm reading through it, there's a chapter talking about the hill of Cumorah, where Joseph Smith apparently found these golden plates. And every year, annually, they have a big festival there. All the Mormon families descend from all over the nation, all over the world, really, and they come for this, kind of their, their own version of a passion play, where they reenact Joseph Smith finding the plates, and it's a big deal, and, and they have their blankets, and they have all their camping gear, and they, they have a wonderful time. And I'm reading about this, and i got to tell you what my heart was doing. I'm reading this knowing how wrong it is, but my heart was going, oh, that's kind of neat. Well, that's kind of, oh, cool. Yeah, they all gather together and I mean, kind of great fellowship. And I mean, it's an interesting story. I can see how the, you know, the parents are teaching it to their kids. And this is going on in my head. And, and at the same time, I go, what am I thinking? What's going on here? The lure is so seductive and so subtle that Moses would say to the people of Israel, and I believe the Lord would say to us, avoid the lure altogether. You want to be an expert? Be an expert in the Word of God. You want to be able to give an answer for the faith that you have? Give an answer because you have spent time studying and knowing the Word. The Word is solid. It's grounded in you. Be an expert in the Word. Psalm 119.104 From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Psalm 119.128 I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. I'm not going to take my time. Point. You know, how many of you think that by the time we die or Jesus comes, we will have studied verse by verse all the way through the Bible? Just see a show of hands. You think we're going to... So you're hoping... Okay. See, I'm thinking this is going to be a long study. And I'm thinking I barely have enough time to get through the Word before Jesus comes. Why would I waste my time on false teachings? I would rather spend it right here and let the Holy Spirit give utterance at the right time to what I've already had placed in my heart by the study of the Word. And I know I'm going round and round about this, but I'm passionate about this game. God gave us His Word to know His Word, not to compare to these other things, but to know what He has for us. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. Going on, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true, Concerning that which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that dreamer, or that, that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, watch this, shall be put to death. Because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. And there is a practical though very difficult truth to understand here, my friends. You might say, what, you want us to put the cult people to death? (laughs) It's not what I'm saying. 
Please hear me clearly. I'm not preaching death to the cultist, but the principle is very sound. There is a time. There is a time when your relationship with a person in this position must be laid to rest. Where the relationship needs to die because of the lure. You say, wait, 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 wait. But she's my friend. I'm holding out hope for her. He's my brother. I'm the only hope that she has. You know what the Lord would say about that? No, you're not. You are not her hope. Jesus is. You are not the convictor of his soul. The Holy Spirit is that. You do not draw people to Jesus. The Father does that. It is not you. And if you are in a relationship with someone who literally is gone down the highway of a cult and all they do is they talk to you is lure, lure, lure and you are feeling that seduction, the relationship needs to be put to rest. So serious, I believe, is the Lord that we remain connected to Jesus and Jesus alone. That if the lure is there, you don't play with it. Well, great. Then what can I do for that person, that family member, that friend who has gone the way of the cult, who I still hold out hope for? What do I do for them if I can't continue to try and work with them and discuss these things with them? You can pray for them. And you can pray passionately for them. And so, so often the most obvious thing that we can do, the most powerful and potent thing we can do for people is the last thing we do. We try and get in there and figure out what it is that they believe and work with them on it. And the Lord's saying, hey, I've got the power here. Why don't you start just praying for them? Let my spirit convict. Let me draw them toward Jesus. Let the Son save them. Lift them up, pray for them, but do not yield. Do not listen. Do not pity that person who themselves believe or teach what you know to be heresy. Put it to death, lay it to rest. We've got to remember, as I said before, there are demonic powers at work in these false religious systems. 1 Corinthians 10.20 tells us, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's either or, not both and. As you live in this world, you can't have one hand in each. Because I'm going I'm to do this thing with my you know, non-Christian friends. We're going to hang out and do these more pagan type deals. But I'm going to be in church on Sunday. I'll, I'll even take communion and get my grace points. I've got it covered. You can't take a, two different cups. Cup of Christ cup of demons make the choice 1 Timothy 4.1 the spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons doctrines of demons cults false teaching because it's all with one purpose to lure away from Christ Jesus 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ again has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And as for me, when it comes to the cults, I would rather just fix my eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of my faith. Hebrews 12, 2. For Israel, actual physical death was required for false teachers. For you and me, spiritually, the principle is the same. 
that we need to put to death the high places, the idols, and even those who would try to falsely lure us from Jesus, we cut those relationships off and pray that the Lord will intercede and save. Verse 9. Stick with me. We're almost done. I know this is serious teaching. It gets worse. You shall surely kill him. And your hand... Moses says, shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. And here we see what the Bible teaches about capital punishment. The originator of capital punishment is the Lord. He originates it in the Noahic covenant back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. You can look it up. The Noahic covenant which ordains capital punishment for the man who takes a life. His life is required of him and that's not the Mosaic covenant. It's not the covenant of God with the people of Israel. It was the covenant of God with the people. What people? The people of Noah. Well, who are the people of Noah? Everyone. (laughs) All of us. That's where we draw our roots, gang. Back to Noah. Capital punishment. This is one of those tough ones. Gang, what's the point of this? Capital punishment does a couple of things. Especially in this context. It It directs the person, the offender, to God. It directs them to God and it detours or deters future crime. It directs them to God. In other words, in a situation like this, God says, you stone this person, you shall surely kill him, your hand will be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. In other words, put him before me. I will deal with him. We think with such a finality in our world, and yet there is a justice, a perfect justice, that is served by the Lord he knows how to handle these things. And so, in this case, especially capital punishment directs the offender to God, but it also deters future crime. In God's theocracy with Israel, He was the judge, not man. He was the mediator of judgment, and He declared and determined that capital punishment worked as a deterrent. Verse 11, look at it again. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. So when the offense occurs, God says the death of that person, the punishment being death, will deter future false teachers. Now again, I'm not suggesting we go out and start killing people. Make sure that's clear. Because some of you, I don't know, you get close to Jerusalem and that syndrome comes in, you get psychotic, and next thing you know you're up on the temple now shooting. I don't want that. Or you have one person ask if he could bring a gun. The answer is no. What about false accusations leveled against innocent people? Well, it's interesting. The mercy of God is pretty intense right here. False accusations against innocent people. What does the Lord say? He says, if you're the one who is aware of the offense, He says, verse 9, your hand shall be the first to put the person to death. The accuser is the executioner. We've seen this before in the law of Moses. The accuser is the executioner. Why? Because if you're going to accuse someone of such a horrendous crime that would result in their death, you are then responsible 
to have your hand laid on that person first. Seems like that would slow people down a bit. If they're just angry or frustrated with a person, if they realized they would then be responsible, that person's blood would be on them. And so their hand would be first. But you might ask, well, why then after that does it say that the hand of all the people have to be on them? The first stone is thrown by the accuser. And then all the people gather around and begin to throw stones together. Why involve the entire community? Because sin involves the entire community. The sin of an individual affects the entire community of faith. It does today. It has historically. Do you remember the story of Achan? Joshua chapter 7. The Israelites go into battle. The Lord says, you take no spoils for you. Well, Achan thought, I'm just going to take a few small items. And he buried them under his tent. The next time the Israelites went into battle, they suffered a massive defeat. And Moses went to the Lord and said, why, Lord? What's going on here? And the Lord said, Moses, there's sin in the camp. And they began to research this. And they found out very quickly that Achan, with his Achan breaking heart, had the stuff buried sorry I couldn't resist that had his stuff buried under his tent one man one man's sin affecting the entire community and so it is when we see it happen in the church today the sin of one person will affect not just that person but spreads out the whole community is involved I, I gotta tell you in my role as a pastor here I often have to stop and think about how my behavior impacts the bridge how my personal behavior in my own personal life out with my family out with my friends away from the fellowship here how my behavior might impact this fellowship you might say wow what a bummer isn't that kind of a heavy burden and the reality is it's a blessed deterrent and I need all the deterrent from sin I can get so it's a good thing it does deter me it, the, the very thought that my behavior could bring down a church as you've seen happen I'm sure many times we've seen churches fall apart because of the pastors failing and so that very thing that, that deterrent is there but here's the thing you need to understand it's not just the pastor or pastors it's not the elders it's not just ministry staff any individual sin or heresy can and will affect the entire body of faith. Those things that we think are very hidden in our lives, our little personal high place in our backyard that nobody else knows about but you. And that sin can and will affect the entire community. It's a spiritual principle I've seen played out over and over and I believe is very true. God, again, He cares about the individual but He also cares for the whole community, the whole body of faith. Verse 12 Going on and even more intense, he says, If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that, some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly if it is true and the matter established that this abomination has been done among you. You shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle or cows with the edge of the sword. 
And then you shall gather all its booty in the middle of its open square and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God and it shall be a ruin forever. It shall never, never be rebuilt. And you know, that could have economic impact. It certainly could have personal impact. It could have strategic and military impact. You know, for Israel, if it was one of their cities that was close to a bordering nation that was somewhat protective, but, but that city fell to idolatry as happened with the city of Dan. Tell Dan in the north, one of the places that is visited on, on a tour to Israel, you can see the ruins of Dan. What is it the Lord says? It shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. It may sound extreme, but it must have to Israel as well because they very rarely did anything like this. They didn't really follow through on this command of Moses. They never followed through on the command of God saying, if there is a city that chases after other gods, eliminate it. They never did. And so what happened? The Lord took care of it. The Lord eliminated Dan. The Lord allowed the Assyrians in 732 B.C. to come in and wipe out all of northern Israel which had gone the way of idol worship. Spread out among the high places and the groves and the pagan Asherah poles. The Assyrians came in and they dragged the northern Israelites off. And today again you can see ruins, leftovers, regions that have never been rebuilt. Just as the Lord said. Verse 17. Nothing from that which is put under the ban shall cling to your hand. In order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger, and here we come, by the way, to the character and nature of God, to show mercy on you, and have compassion on you, and make you increase just as he has sworn to your fathers. If you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments which I am commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of of the Lord your God the character and the heart of God is mercy and compassion and increase and he says I just want you to hear my voice I want you to listen to me and follow me well this is hard teaching it's strenuous and it's exacting these requirements for the people of God but I want to take you back we're going to finish up here but I want to take you back to 2 John chapter 1 and listen again to these two verses 2 John 1, 10 and 11 if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching do not receive him into your house do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds let me explain this to you in John's day there were a lot of traveling teachers traveling rabbis traveling prophets who would go from place to place and the custom of the time was when a traveling teacher or rabbi or prophet would come into a town he would seek a place to stay he would go up and knock on some stranger's door and say hey I'm a visiting rabbi from a neighboring town and I'm, I'm here to teach for a while and I'm looking for a place to stay and this was even the case with Christian workers who would be sent out Paul on his missionary journey among others who would go and travel from town to town and seek to be teachers. These traveling teachers were not uncommon in John's day. The question was, and what John is raising here, is what kind of baggage is the teacher bringing into the town? What kind of baggage is the traveling teacher carrying with him? John said, if someone is not bringing you the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't even greet them because their baggage is going to be too much for you. Their baggage is going to be weighty and heavy. 
their law and their requirements are going to be hard for you. So don't even greet them. And you might say, well Rick, can't I even greet a Jehovah's Witness at my door? Can't I even just say hello to a Mormon on my porch? Can't I just have some of those nice Mormon boys do some work around my house, which they often offer to do? The word greeting that John uses, the one who gives him a greeting, participates in his evil deeds, says don't even give him a greeting. That word greeting is kairo. Kairo. And it means salutations, God bless you, but implicit in that greeting was acceptance. A welcome tolerance of the person you're greeting. A way of saying, yeah, come on in. An invitation to come in, to sit down, to have a bite to eat, to stay a while, to rest here in my home. In that case, John would say you're setting yourself up for heavy baggage. You want to listen to the teacher who is bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because Jesus says, Matthew 11.30, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, when you come into that promised land, into that new Jerusalem which is Jesus, when you come to Him, His burden is, is light. His yoke is easy. You become freed. You become light on your feet. You become filled with the joy of the Spirit. That's what Jesus brings. Not a heavy, ponderous thing, but freedom in Christ. Why get so serious about this right now? Because 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 clearly says that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. We were talking last night at our elders meeting how, how fascinating it is that at the bridge, and I'm not trying to puff us up because we haven't discovered anything new, but it's fascinating that at the bridge, by teaching books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we have seen a church grow. By teaching the truth, by talking about things like church discipline, the blood of Christ, sacrifice, by talking about obedience, by clearly just going through the Word of God, we have seen people hungry for the Word come to the Lord. It's an amazing thing. No strategies, no programs, no plans of man, no foot pumps of Egypt. For those of you who know Deuteronomy 11, just simply the Word. I have become absolutely convinced that the Word of God is the most effective evangelical tool that we have. Well, I'm going to couple that co-equal with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not the ways of man. It is the way of God. And His way is perfect. So don't turn aside. Don't turn away. Don't even welcome heresy. Listen to the Lord. Serve Him. And cling to Him. And Father, that's our desire tonight. That truly is the heart of of this teaching. And Father, I believe the heart that you had for Israel as you so clearly commanded that they not even give paganism an ear. So intense is your love and jealousy to save a people. And Father, even tonight, so intense is your love 
and your jealousy to save us. Father, I have been greatly disappointed in the past to see people who I know loved you turn aside from you and actually join a cult. I can't imagine, Lord, how painful that must be for your heart. And one last thing tonight I want to ask you to do as we pray. If there is anybody in your life, a brother, a sister, mother, a son or daughter, a friend, who is involved with a cult, who is involved in that dangerous lure, I just want to ask you right now as we pray, would you speak their name quietly before the Lord? Not so that other people can hear, but just speak it quietly to the Father. And Lord, we lift up those among us who we know that don't know you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to convict in a way that we cannot. That, Father, you would begin to draw these names, these people to Jesus with a power that is so far beyond us. And Father, if there's any burden for us, may it be the burden of intercession. May we be called to intercede and pray for those who at this moment stand lost or drawn away into other places. Father, we ask that you will save. And at the same time, Father, ground us in your word. Fill us with your spirit. And may we learn to stand on the foundation of truth. The foundation that has already been laid, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.